Good afternoon, everyone. There's something about war that often gets people excited and infused with a zeal for battle. In the initial stages of war, there is often a wave of enthusiasm as soldiers are drafted or line up to enlist. Historian James McPherson comments in his History of the American Civil War, titled Battle Cry of Freedom, that in the immediate aftermath of the Confederates firing on Fort Sumter, as he said, quoting, war fever overrode sober reflections on the purpose of the fighting, end quote. And this was evidenced in some of the examples he gives of some of the editorials that were written shortly after the war in newspapers. Yet a common phrase reflected in the diaries and letters of Union soldiers was that their motive for fighting was to, quote, maintain the best government on earth, end quote. A New Jersey soldier wrote, quote, we will be held responsible before God if we don't do our part in helping to transmit this boon of civil and religious liberty down to succeeding generations, end quote. For their part, many in the South were motivated by a determination not to be dominated by the North or to see that their land or to see their land invaded by northern armies without resistance. A Southern diary reflected the sentiments of many Southern women at the outbreak of the war, stating, quote, if every man did not hasten to battle, they vowed they would themselves rush out and meet meet the Yankee vandals, end quote. On the other hand, wars may start out with a sense of reluctance, of foreboding, a sense of resignation, even if tempered with resolve and determination to prevail. For example, when war broke out in Europe in 1939 with the German invasion of Poland, it was met with a sense of trepidation in both Britain and France. Those countries and European countries in general had not fully recovered from the shock of the destruction of the First World War, which had begun about 25 years earlier. And even in Germany, there was a sense of apathy as Hitler invaded Poland to begin World War II, at least in one sense it was begun at that time. William Scharer, a reporter for CBS Radio in Berlin at the time, wrote in his book, The Nightmare Years, 1930-1940, quote, I went out into the streets to see how the German people were taking the coming of war. They struck me as apathetic. What a contrast, I imagined, between this gray apathy and the way it had been here the day the war started in 1914. Then, from all I had read, there had been a wild enthusiasm for the war. End quote. The point is that war often generates excitement, energy, animation. It's amazing, in a way, how people can get so excited about killing, maiming, or destroying other people. That could be one way of looking at it, and often war does engender a kind of bloodlust in many people. 
Not uncommonly, people tend to see war in terms of good versus evil. The enemy is often pictured as evil and threatening. Prior to attacking Poland, Adolf Hitler, the German chancellor, arranged a fake attack by Nazi SS troops dressed in Polish uniforms against a German radio station near the Polish border. About a dozen concentration camp prisoners also dressed in Polish uniforms were left dead on the scene as proof of the purported Polish attack. In a speech on the day the Germans attacked Poland, Hitler sought to justify the assault on Poland with false charges that the Polish army had begun firing on German territory first. Similar incidents were arranged elsewhere to justify the invasion of Poland that Hitler had in reality planned for months. The attack on the radio station, the purported attack, that is, by the Poles, was widely reported in the press, including newspapers in the United States, making it appear for a time that Poland was the instigator of the fighting. And thus, the effort was made to lend sympathy to the cause of the Germans. People often enter into war in pursuit of what they perceive as their legitimate aspirations. Many may be willing to sacrifice everything, down to their very lives, to see their enemy defeated, and they may fight on even with no hope of victory until overtaken by death or exhaustion. The question for us today is, what about us as Christians? How deeply do we realize that we are in a life and death struggle for supremacy? Do we realize that our very lives, our destiny is at stake and indirectly the destiny of all mankind? Our war is not a physical, but a spiritual war. Can we be as zealous about our war as people sometimes are in the physical wars that they fight? As I said, our war is not physical, it is not of the flesh, it is not a carnal war in in that sense. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 3, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Rather, as we shall see, our war is spiritual in nature, the enemies are those of the spirit, and our weapons are those of the spirit. In due time, we'll break this down further, but first I want to consider how an effective soldier should think, what his attitude should be. To gain victory, a soldier must go into battle with zeal and confidence. Notice the zeal and confidence with which David went into battle against the enemy of Israel as recounted in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Beginning with verse 1 of 1 Samuel 17, Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle and were gathered together at uh, Sokah, which belongs to Judah, and they encamped between Sokah and Ezekah. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, 
his height was six cubits in a span. Now, as I've mentioned, six cubits in a span would be a, a minimum of over nine feet. And if it's a long cubit, it would be more like about 12 feet. It goes on to say of this giant named Goliath that he had a bronze helmet on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. Now 5,000 shekels of bronze would be approximately 180 pounds. A common pound of 16 ounces would be equal 180 of them to 5,000 shekels of bronze based on a shekel weighing 252 grains troy as it is, as it is stated in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. Other sources give various weights for this coat of mail. Gill's commentary, for example, gives the weight as 156 pounds. But whatever the exact weight, it was a very heavy coat of mail. At least it would be heavy for a normal-sized man. But remember, this giant was 9 to 12 feet tall. It goes on to say, he had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. Now a weaver's beam can be any of various sizes and lengths. Gill's commentary estimates that it was 26 feet long. Jameson Fawcett and Brown commentary estimates that it was under 5 feet long. But the most reasonable estimate, perhaps, is that the spear staff plus its iron head was about 9 feet long or about the size of about as long as the giant was tall. And it goes on to say that his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, which would be about 21 and a half pounds, or other estimates are 15 to 19 pounds. And a shield bearer went before him. Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. goes on in verse 22 with the story, and it says, As David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army and came and greeted his brothers, then as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines. And he spoke according to to the same words. So David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and it shall be that the man who kills him, the king, will enrich with great riches and give him his daughter and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. 
Then David spoke to the men who stood with him or stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Then in verse 31 it goes on. Now when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul, and he sent for him. Then David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go up against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth and he a man of war from you. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go and the Lord be with you. We continue the story in verse 40. Then he took his staff in his hand and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag in a pouch which he had and his sling was in his hand and he drew near the, to the Philistine. So the Philistine came and began drawing near to David and the men who bore the shield went before him or the man I should say who bore the shield went before him and when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. So it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, that David hastened and ran toward the, the army to meet the Philistine. Then David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and he slung it and struck the Philistine in the forehead so that the, th the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. 
that there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. End of quote. Now, note David's confidence as reflected in his actions and statements, not just in his own skills, but in God's power to deliver him and to give him the victory. Contrast David's courage and confidence with the fear displayed by the rest of Israel's army before the giant was slain. Confidence and zeal alone are not enough for victory, even though they are elements that are important. The soldier must also know his enemy, and he must have the proper weapons to defeat him. For us, the question is, do we know our enemies? Or do we even know that we have enemies? Do we know who our enemies are? And do we know their potential for making trouble? Do we know how to meet them and defeat them? The first enemy that we have to contend with from a spiritual standpoint is ourselves or the self. Notice what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9, beginning with verse 24. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24, he said, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Paul is speaking here in these verses about overcoming the self, disciplining the body. The word translated temperate here in the New King James Version in verse 25 is from the Greek word enkratiomai, which means to exercise restraint or self-control. The flesh the self with its lusts and desires must be conquered and brought under control. It must be restrained. And it's up to us to conquer it and to restrain it. In Romans 7 and verse 18, Romans 7 and verse 18, Paul wrote, For I know that in me that is in my flesh nothing good dwells. For the will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now what Paul is describing here is our carnal nature. He is describing our fleshly mind unconquered by God's Spirit at work. What this tells us is that we cannot fully overcome the fleshly nature on our own strength alone. 
even when we want to overcome it, even when we have the desire to overcome, we often find that without God's help, we fail. And we do those things that we really don't want to do because of the weakness of the flesh. To overcome the flesh, to overcome ourselves, requires discipline and determination as reflected in what we read earlier in 1 Corinthians 9, but it also requires God's Spirit working with us to overcome. And Paul goes on to discuss that in chapter 8 of the book of Romans, beginning with verse 1 in Romans 8. He says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life of Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. What Paul is telling us here is that with the help of God's Spirit, it is possible to overcome our fleshly nature. It is possible to discipline ourselves and to rule over our carnality, to conquer our flesh, to win that battle. We're told in 2 Timothy chapter 1, and verse 7, that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. God makes available to us His Spirit, a spirit of power that can help us overcome ourselves as well as our other enemies. The second enemy that we have to contend with from a spiritual standpoint is the world. We may not think of the world as our enemy, but it is an enemy. The world hates us. As Jesus said in John 17, verse 14, John 17, verse 14, speaking of his disciples in a prayer to God, he said, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Note here that Jesus said that the world hates those who are his. Over the centuries, the agents of Satan in this world have persecuted and murdered untold thousands, probably millions of men and women who sought to live according to the truth of God's word. 
And that's why they were killed. In a similar manner, Christ was murdered at the behest of Jewish and Roman authorities. But he gave himself to deliver us from the world, the same world that persecuted and killed him. Galatians 1 and verse 3. Galatians 1 and verse 3 we read, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins that we might be delivered from this world, from this present evil age. James tells us in the book of James chapter 1 and verse 27 that pure religion True religion involves keeping ourselves unspotted from the world. He said, quoting pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. End of quote. In other words, we're not to be defiled by the world. Even though we live in the world, we're not to be corrupted and defiled by it. Christ overcame the world, we're told. In John 16, verse 33, John 16, verse 33, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. He was speaking to his disciples. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. End quote. Now, we likewise, while we are in the world, are not to be of the world. That is, we are not to live according to worldly pleasures, worldly desires, worldly passions, and worldly customs that are ungodly. Rather, we are to follow Christ and live according to his word. Live according to his standards, his rules, not the standards and rules of the world. In John 17, verse 14, as we read earlier, John 17 and verse 14, Jesus said, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. He went on to say, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Now notice what separates us from the world. What sanctifies us. What makes us separate and holy. It is the truth. The word of God. In verse 18, he went on to say, As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Again, it's the truth that separates us from the world. In verse 20, he said, I do not pray for these alone, 
but also for those who will believe in me through their word. End quote. We must be able to see the difference between what the world, that is this society, would influence us to do and what God requires of us in terms of walking according to his word. We have to understand the difference. We have to understand, first of all, that there is a difference, which many people who claim to be Christians don't even seem to, to understand there is a difference between this society and and its claims and ways and, and what God wants us to do. We have to know the difference and we have to be determined to walk according to God's word and not the ways of the world. In 1 John 2 verse 15, 1 John 2 verse 15, we are instructed, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So we're not to love this world. We're not to indulge in the lusts of this world and the prideful things of this world, the, its vanities, its rebellion against God. But we are to do God's will if we want to abide forever. The third enemy that we have to face in the spiritual war in which we are engaged, at least I hope we're engaged in it, is Satan and his host. In Ephesians 6 and verse 10, Ephesians 6 and verse 10, we read, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the, in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Satan is the god of this world. Satan is the god of this present age. In 2 Corinthians 4, beginning with verse 3, 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 3, it says, If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the god of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ as the image of God should shine unto them. The God of this world, Satan the devil, has blinded those who are deceived in this world. Those who are lost, those who are separated from God. In the King James Version, uh, this uh, version that I just read is the, the King James. In the New King James, it reads where it says in the King James Version, the, the God of this world, in the New King James, it's the God of this age, as it's translated. Jesus referred to Satan as the ruler of this world. Do we realize that this world, this present age, is ruled by Satan the devil? He is its master. He is the one who is orchestrating what goes on in this world. And 
But Jesus said he is its ruler in John 12, verse 31, also in John 14, verse 30, and in John 16, verse 11. It is Satan who led his enemies to want to kill Jesus Christ. Jesus said to those who sought to kill him, in John chapter 8, verse 44, or let's begin with verse 40. He said in John 8, verse 40, Now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. Then in verse 44, Jesus went on to say, verse 44, to these people who were out to kill him, he said, you are of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. Do you ever wonder why lying seems to be so pervasive in the world? Why are leaders, political leaders, constantly lie? Why the news media constantly lies about one thing after another? Why lies seem to be prevalent everywhere in our society? It's because Satan is the ruler of this world. He is the orchestrator of its culture, its society. And he is a liar. And he is infused with the world with a spirit of falsehood, deception, and lies. Most religion is nothing but a pack of lies. And Satan is a murderer. He is a destroyer. He is out to destroy us. He's out to kill us, literally. He wants to, to defeat us. It's Satan who led Adam and Eve to reject God's law and to sin. Satan has deceived the entire world, virtually all of it. As we read in Revelation 12, verse 9, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. We are in a struggle against Satan, and God wills that we overcome him just as Christ did when he was in the flesh. So we have to know who our enemies are. We have to know what they're up to, what their intentions are how they operate. The right weapons are also important for victory in any war. One reason the Germans were able to overwhelm Poland in less than three weeks in 1939 is that they possessed more and better weapons, such as tanks and planes, than did the Poles. David though his chances of defeating the giant may have seemed hopeless to onlookers, had just the right weapon to defeat Israel's enemy. The weapons God has put at our disposal can empower us to overcome our enemies. We read in 2 Corinthians 10, beginning with verse 4. 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience 
when your obedience is fulfilled. As indicated in this scripture, our weapons are spiritual and they are of God. In Ephesians 6, Ephesians 6, beginning with verse 13, we are told, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand therefore having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. So we see here named as weapons available in our arsenal is the truth, that is the word of God, righteousness, faith, the hope of salvation, the spirit of God, and prayer. These are our primary weapons. Fasting is another one that could be mentioned along with those mentioned here. We must work, we must strive, but what makes the weapons truly effective is that through them God works in our lives to give us the mastery over our enemies. But it does take a great deal of effort on our part to put these weapons to use. Paul wrote in Colossians 1 verse 29, Colossians 1 and verse 29, to this end I also labor, striving according to his working which works in me mightily. Notice Paul said that he labored. He was striving. He was putting forth great effort to implement God's will in his life through using these weapons. How much time do we spend studying God's word? If, 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 if the word of God, if the truth is one of our primary weapons, then we've got to use that weapon. And the only way we can use it is by studying it, by knowing it, by understanding it, and then applying it in our lives. Do we study the Bible every day? We should be studying the Bible daily. Immersing ourselves in God's word every day. What about prayer? How much time do we spend in prayer? Are we praying daily to God? Do we pray for other people as is mentioned here? Do we pray for the saints? Do we pray just for our own needs or the needs of other people as well? These are things that we ought to be doing if we expect to win the battle. We must have faith and we must exercise faith. Ephesians 1 verse 15. Ephesians 1 verse 15. Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. In the eyes of, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, 
that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power. We have mighty power available to us, prepared to work in us to accomplish our goal, to help us win the battle, to gain the victory. With God's Spirit working in us through godly faith and obedience to His Word, we can overcome despite the odds, despite all of the things that are stacked against us. We can overcome, we can win the battle. In 1 John 2, 1 John 2 and verse 3, John wrote, Now by this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word Truly, the love of God is perfected in him. Now, note carefully what these words say. It says, if we claim that we know God, but we're not keeping his commandments, we are liars. But it says, whoever keeps the word of God, the love of God is perfected in him. He will be growing toward perfection. He went on to say, by this we know that we are in him, He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. We're to follow Christ's example. We're to imitate him. John went on to write in verse 14 of 1 John 2. 1 John 2 verse 14. I have written to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. Now remember, what did John say was the proof that we know God? It is keeping his commandments. And he said, I've written to you because you have known him who is from the beginning. In other words, known God. He went on to say, I've written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the wicked one. How did they overcome the wicked one? Because they were strong, because God's word was abiding in them. That's how we overcome. We have available to us everything necessary to win the spiritual war that we are engaged in. But we must exercise zeal and determination. Zeal and determination. Apathy, spiritual laziness, and indifference can defeat us if we allow that to happen. We are warned against apathy and a lack of zeal. In Revelation 3, Revelation 3 and verse 14, Jesus said to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. 
I wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. He went on to say in verse 19, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we're sternly warned against spiritual apathy, against being lukewarm and indifferent. We're told to be zealous. We're told to overcome. David wrote in 2 Samuel chapter 22 and verse 26, 2 Samuel 22 and verse 26, this was after he had defeated a host of enemies with the help of God, including the giant, as well as a number of other enemies that he had to contend with. He said in 2 Samuel 22, beginning with verse 26, with the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With a blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. With the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. You will save the humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty, that you may bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord. The Lord shall enlighten my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop. By my God I can leap over a wall. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust him. For who is God except the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? God is my strength and power. And he makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of deer. And sets me on my high places. He teaches my hands to make war. So that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have also given me the shield of your salvation. Your gentleness has made me great. You enlarged my path under me. So my feet did not slip. If we can be properly motivated about fighting the spiritual battles of this life. If we can know our enemy, understand our enemies. And understand what it takes to win the battle. If we can have zeal tempered by wisdom. Confidence in God. And the spiritual weapons he's made available for us. We can't lose question is, can we get excited about the cause of Christ to which we've been called to battle? It really is, without equivocation, the most holy and righteous cause possible. Why shouldn't we be enthusiastic and eager for battle, running as David did to meet the enemy, trusting as he did that God would teach us to use 
the weapons he's given us to gain the victory.